0: Well, good morning. If you're remaining in the room, I, you, I encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be reading a few verses there. Uh, you can follow along in the screens or uh, on the, in your bulletin as well. But if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. Um, just as you're turning, we talk a lot about, um, in our culture today, we talk a lot about work-life balance. And, and maybe you've thought about that with your own life and, and your own work. Um, We now in our culture have these cell phones where we can get work emails, we can get work text messages and work phone calls at any point. It's like carrying the office with us wherever we go. And so that's a new thing in our culture. And the other thing is um, I've noticed more and more that the increase in side hustles, maybe you've heard of this before, um, but about 45% of Americans uh, have now what's called a side hustle, or a second job, or a second source of income. And so you add all these things together, and we really deal with, in American culture, figuring out this work-life balance and what is uh, the healthiest way to, to balance our, our rest with our activity. And uh, the Bible talks a lot about this, believe it or not. There's a lot of ancient wisdom in the Bible about work-life balance, Uh, But it's also a topic that managed to get Jesus in a little bit of hot water uh, during his ministry. And that's what we're going to read about this morning um, from Luke chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 11. Two instances in the life of Jesus uh, that got him in a little bit of trouble. So uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, And also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But, there were, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's word. Father, thanks so much for uh, just the gift of worship this morning, Lord, as we pray uh, each week, um, the way the our liturgy and our routine each Sunday um, communicates the gospel to our hearts, Lord. And sometimes we're aware of it, sometimes we aren't, but truths that we recite or truths that we sing, Lord, are, are things that seep deeply into our hearts. And uh, impact and changes for the gospel. So thank you for this gift of worship. Thank you for the beauty of your word. Um, thank you for this Lenten season and our opportunity to, to look at the gospels and just pray that as we uh, reflect on your word now, Father, that your spirit would visit us um, and change us as a result. Refresh us in the truth of the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we're about three weeks into our Lenten season now, and if you've been with us, you'll know that uh, we've been looking at stories from the Gospels that are uh, a little less recognizable, um, s- stories that uh, are not told very often, um, and that's partly because they're sort of difficult to read because we're reading stories in which Jesus faced a significant amount of opposition. Uh, Albert Einstein once said that great spirits always encounter opposition, and that was certainly true of Jesus Christ when he was here on this earth, and particularly uh, the three years of his ministry and towards the end of those three years. Uh, If you were with us at the very beginning, we looked at a story from the beginning of Jesus' ministry where, uh, at the very end of the story, his enemies had gathered together and were ready to throw him off a cliff because of blasphemy. These weren't strangers. These were, this was from his hometown. These were friends, family members, and people he'd grown up with. Last week, we saw a story at the end of his ministry where everybody was getting ready to, to stone him for what he'd said and what he had done. And so these are both bookends at, his, at, at either end of his public ministry that shows that everything's sort of in the middle. There were great moments, but there were lots of moments of intense opposition when it came to Jesus and what he taught, what he was trying to do. And really, this story is no different. At the end of our story, as we read, his enemies were full of rage, and they were planning to have him killed. Three different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell this story in one fashion or another. At the end of the Mark account, it says, uh, Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was not made for man nor man for the Sabbath. And Jesus concludes this narrative by saying, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what I want us to do this morning is just unpack these three little phrases, see what they mean for us and why at the end of the day they got Jesus into so much trouble. So let's start with that phrase that comes from the Luke account, which says the Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is made for man. Years ago, uh, an author, Kevin D. Young, uh, wrote a a book called Crazy Busy, and uh, talks about the busyness of American culture, and providentially, it's a very short book, so if you're feeling very busy, but you want to deal with that topic, this is a great one to read, And he told a little anecdote in the story, and uh, I will read what he wrote here. He says, I read an anecdote once about a woman from another culture who came to the United States and began to introduce herself as busy. Curious, isn't it? It was, after all, the first thing she heard when meeting any American, hello, I'm busy. She figured it was a part of our traditional greeting here in American culture, and so she told everyone that she met that that's who she was. I'm busy. I don't have to tell you that we live in an unbelievably busy culture, uh, and I am the first one in the room to raise my hand and say I am guilty of this very thing. In fact, in American culture, uh, to not be busy is to be considered weird, for we're just standing on the street corner and we're not somehow engaged in our phones and we're just looking around and enjoying the scenery, we're considered to be weird nowadays. That's because production is king. Anything that slows us down has to be removed. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser said that in our American culture, it's as if it presents an all-out assault on nurturing our interior life. And I think he was probably right about that. And so what could Jesus's words here have to say about the frenetic pace of the lives in which we live today? To explore that question, I think we first need to ask what exactly was going on in Jesus's day. It was certainly a little different in terms of its pace, but there was no doubt things that were going on that, that prompted Jesus to say these terms. Well, Jesus grew up in the Jewish culture. That's where he did the majority of his ministry, and for Jews, after their temple was destroyed it was destroyed a couple of times but after uh, their temple was destroyed they didn't have something defining to distinguish them from the rest of the people around them see when they had the temple they could say that's that's the heart of Judaism but when that was destroyed they had they didn't have that temple to distinguish them and so sabbath keeping became the the hallmark of their beliefs The Sabbath was their day of rest. It was precious to the the Jews. And it became this practice that distinguished them from the rest of the world that was around them, their Sabbath-keeping. Now, maybe there's something to that. Uh, Maybe there's something true there for you and I as well. If we live in a sort of culture of a frenetic pace, perhaps the way we can swim against the stream the way we can signal our faith to the rest of the world around us is to practice the Sabbath, to, to practice this, this regular, this intentional rest. So what does Jesus mean when he says that the Sabbath was made for man? Well, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and the story of the, the creation of the world, it tells us that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Have you ever thought about that? On the seventh day, he rested. Did he rest because he was tired? He was worn out from six days of creating the world. He just needed to sit down and, and recharge his batteries a little bit. Needed to have some me time. No, we don't think that's what was going on at all. What was God doing? He was he was setting a pattern. He was setting an example for us for all of humanity. So. So there's even a part of the fabric of creation that says we work and then we rest. We need both to work and to rest. When God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, he reaffirms that the Sabbath day is important. He says we need to honor it and we need to keep it holy. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was one who regularly practiced the Sabbath He was always at the synagogue on the Sabbath day, worshiping. But we also know that he regularly disappeared into the quiet and into the the stillness to rest and connect with the Father. Doesn't that seem sort of counterproductive to to the desires of our culture and our world? Jesus was here. Didn't he have lots of work to do? And yes, he still found time to sneak away in silence and stillness to connect with the Father. His followers, the church, eventually moves the Sabbath to Sunday, but it became a vital part of what it meant to follow Jesus. So if we are his followers as well, what does this Sabbath do for us? What does this rest do for us as God's people? Well, of course, it offers a respite for us, but it offers perspective as well. It's it's an active reminder to us that we are not God. It reminds us that we need rest, that we cannot go on forever. Have you ever wondered, uh, you know, we're a little sl- uh, lacking on sleep this morning because of the, the loss of the hour. Have you ever sat and wondered, why does God make it so that we need to sleep at night? Wouldn't it be so much more productive if we couldn't? And you hear stories of people that, oh, I can do everything on three hours of sleep at night. I've never been one of those people. Why does God make us sleep? I think he makes us sleep as a regular reminder that we can't live in perpetual motion, that we are different than him, we are not God, we are his creations, and that means our abilities, it means our our stamina are limited. And so this need for rest and the Sabbath itself is a way for us to be humbled, to be reminded that we are creatures who are in need of rest. We don't just need it physically, but we also need the humbling that comes from it as well. So that's why God gives us this Sabbath. But I think he also gives it to us because we need a certain rhythm and a routine to our lives. Because the Sabbath was never just about rest, but it was also about this routine of worship. this this routine of, of gathering together as God's people to remind our hearts of the very things that matter most. Paul Tripp said that corporate worship is the gracious reminder that it's not about you, that you've been born into a life that is the celebration of another. See, the world tells us that we're the hero of our own stories, Uh, It tells us that our success and our well-being are the end all and be all of our existence. And then we come to worship. We sing the songs. We go through the liturgy. We come to worship and we're actually reminded that this is not all about us. We're often pounded daily with sort of narcissistic and self-centered tendencies of our world. So why do we need worship? We need worship to humble us. To tell us that all of this is not ultimately about us. It's about another. But there's more to this. The world around us also pounds us with all sorts of alternative messages about life. It says to, to find life here, find life in this, find life in that accomplishment or that possession. And all these things, these messages that pound against our mind and our hearts day in and day out, they're so easy to fall prey to. It's easy to be sucked in because that's the natural pull of our hearts anyway. And that's just another reason why we need worship. It reminds us that life is not found in these lesser things. Life is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, life is found, and all those alternative messages and those alternative paths to life that we hear about every single day are really just dead ends leading only to emptiness. Tim Keller said, we are called not simply to communicate the gospel to non-believers. We, of course, are called to do that, but we must also intentionally celebrate the gospel before them. And that's what we do as we come to worship. We celebrate the gospel before a world that is watching us. And so we need rest. We need those routine reminders that it's not about us, that, that Jesus is the source of life. We were made to intentionally celebrate the gospel before a watching world. And so the Sabbath was made for man. But Jesus also says here that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, but man was not made for the Sabbath. What did Jesus mean by that? I think he meant that the Sabbath is remarkably important. It's something we ought to engage in, but it cannot be the ultimate. cannot be the ultimate. You see, the keeping of the law, as we saw last week, was very important to the Jews. And the keeping of the Sabbath was uh, one of the most important rules for Sort of maintaining their identity and their spirituality, their pride, distinguishing them from the world that was around them. But you get the sense, as you read the Gospels, that the Sabbath, while being very important, had become almost too important for the Jewish people. And the way I try to explain this is is this: I use a sort of bit of a silly example. Imagine for a while that you've got a real problem with donuts right? Hey, y'all like donuts? Everybody likes donuts, right? But imagine you have a real problem with donuts. You go into the donut shop, you sit down, and you say, I'm just going to have one donut, and then you end up eating six by your end of your time there. And so you decide this is a real problem. I got to fix this about myself. And so you make a rule for yourself that says, next time I go to the donut shop, I'm only ever going to eat one donut, and I'm not going to eat any more. But all of a sudden, you're sitting there, you've had that one donut, you start to think about, man, I'd really like to have another donut. You can't seem to control yourself. And so you decide, I need to make some more rules, some extra rules for me in my donut eating, so I will never go to a donut shop when I'm hungry. In fact, I won't go to a donut shop at all. In fact, I won't even drive on the street in which the donut shop is open on. And even if we are having dinner together and somebody brings up donuts, I'm not even going to talk about donuts. Why? Because i got a real donut problem. What have you done? You've, you've taken that original rule of limiting yourself to one donut, and now you've made all these other rules to protect yourself from breaking the original one. Now, why do I tell this story? Well, the Jews, in some ways, had done this very thing with the Sabbath. They believed in the importance of this rule, but they created all sorts of additional laws to protect them from breaking that principle law. In fact, if you go to one of their sacred texts, a text called the Mishnah, you'll see that it outlines 39 additional rules about keeping the Sabbath. One of those additional rules says that you can glean from fields Um, but that was to some degree allowable on the Sabbath. And so you could pluck and eat the grain, but rubbing it between your hands was considered work and a violation of the Sabbath. And yet that is exactly what Jesus' disciples do in our text. It's the very thing they do in our narrative. The Jews also believed that, that life and death matters of health were allowed on the Sabbath... But if you could wait, then you should. Life and death matter, allowable on the Sabbath. But if you can wait, if it can wait till Sunday or Monday or another day, then you should wait. And so they had this rule as well. And so the Jews had heard that Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. So they decided to spy out on him. And what does Jesus do in our text? He intentionally heals a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And you can read their reaction in verse 11. They were filled with fury. They discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. That word fury means, it's it's sort of softened in our translation. It means blind, inconsolable rage. Blind, inconsolable rage. And both Matthew and Mark tells us that after this, They wanted to kill him for his violations of the Sabbath. What was going on? Well, they had become so blinded by their rule-keeping and their rage that they even missed the fact that this man was healed. I always laugh at this poor man in the story. I guess it was a good day for him. But he's been healed, and nobody seems to care or take notice. He has to wonder, hey, didn't anybody notice here that... That my hand was healed in this process? What a good day this is. At the end of the day, it really is a question of authority. Does Jesus really have the authority to redefine what the Sabbath is and how we practice it? But I think there's also a warning here, a great temptation in the thinking that the practice or the rule keeping becomes the ultimate thing that defines our faith. And we saw this a little bit last week. You see, for the Jews, their entire identity was rooted in their rule-keeping. It was the thing that that differentiated them from the rest of the world, but it had become the entire substance of their faith. So what that means is this Sabbath, which is a good thing, this good practice, had risen to the level of the ultimate. And so Jesus came to say, man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath. Instead, the ultimate, the essence of all this thing, the core belief of what all this really is, is about Jesus Christ and about Jesus Christ alone. And so that brings us finally to the last thing that Jesus says here, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He comes to provide rest, but he comes to provide rest that is beyond simply physical. He brings spiritual rest. He brings true rest for our souls. David Brooks wrote an article a few years back called The Epidemic of Worry. And if you pay any attention to our culture today, you know levels of mental health, mental levels of worry, um, anxiety are just off the charts. When he wrote this um, article, it was just right in the election season. And uh, he said that, you know, this election, these election cycles, which are about to get in again, are tutorials on worry. And that mental health professionals are even starting to see people come in with election-related anxiety. So they even have a name for it now. Well, he writes this, we feel besieged by busyness and plagued by the daily excess of choices. At the same time, there's a pervasive cosmic unease. I thought that was insightful. A a pervasive cosmic unease and anxiety that we don't quite understand the meaning of life or have not surrendered to some all-encompassing commitment that would bring coherence and peace. You see, friends, I think all of us, we all experience worry. We all experience it at all sorts of levels, including the deepest of levels. We feel a restlessness inside of us that often feels unquenchable. And so what do we do with it? What is our answer to this epidemic of worry? What's the the answer to the anxiety of our souls that we all feel? Well, our go-to answer is that we strive. We work hard. We strive to, to, to confront our fears. We strive to make ourselves better people. We, we somehow strive to earn our way back to God, hoping somehow that our goodness will outweigh our bad deeds. We, we strive to build our own kingdoms. We, we strive to merit the favor of others and ultimately the favor of God. When you think about it, isn't this the very thing that's behind all of our busyness? A striving for, for meaning and for purpose. And so maybe that sounds a lot like You. If this is you, do you strive like this? And if so, aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of striving? Wouldn't you like a a vacation from your worry, a break from all this hard work and from all this striving? Well, Jesus comes along and he says, Come to me, the Lord of the Sabbath, and find rest for your souls. You see, we strive to confront our fears, but Jesus tells us that his perfect love casts out all of our fears. We strive to better ourselves, and and he tells us to simply own our mess and stop pretending. We strive to earn our way back to God, and he tells us that we are hopeless in trying to do so, and that's why he came to do it for us. We strive to build our own kingdoms. He tells us to live for His. We strive to merit the favor of others and the favor of God. He tells us to stop striving and instead to rest in what He has done for us. See, friends, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. In Jesus, every single day becomes the Sabbath, every single day is an opportunity to experience rest for our souls. I'll close with St. Augustine who always said it best when he said thou has made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Let's pray.